Hello, and welcome to the Ether Podcast. In this episode, we visit with Dr. Kelly Atkinson, a political scientist with the RAND Corporation and author of Mission Injury, The Force After Afghanistan, in our spring 2023 issue. Dr. Atkinson's research interests include human security, gender policy, the women, peace, and security policy agenda, military readiness, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Kelly is a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force Reserve and previously served 15 years as an active duty Air Force intelligence officer, including assignments as commander of the Air Force's Human Intelligence Unit in the Pacific and as an assistant professor of political science at the U.S. Air Force Academy. Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Laura. It's wonderful to be here. Um, So first, let's talk about the background of your interest in the subject of mission injury. Absolutely. So I actually developed the concept of mission injury, and and I'm not sure if others out in the literature have written about it, but um, mission injury was a new term that I thought of back about two years ago when the U.S. was withdrawing from Afghanistan. And Watching that unfold, working at the Air Force Academy while it was occurring, coordinating with my colleagues, many of whom had years of operational experience in Afghanistan, I I felt a very significant sense of loss and distress seeing what was happening and seeing us withdraw, but also feeling this sense of mission failure. Because as we withdrew, we saw the Taliban take over the country. And uh, I had never deployed to Afghanistan, but I spent many years working in the ISR world with uh, drone operations over the country. So operationally, I had been involved, but it was it was a difficult time. And I was struggling with understanding this feeling of loss and this sense of failure. And so uh, in a cathartic way, I wrote an op-ed draft that made its way into this article just as almost a writing exercise, but as a way to work through these feelings of of what's going on and why do we feel this sense of loss and how does that connect to the sacrifices military members have been making for 20 years in the war on terror to sustain this mission. I think of this concept of mission injury as distinct from moral injury, which is really that individual level of of, um, service members have participated in something that then echoes through trauma. Mission injury, I think of as a much more systemic level. So what happens when we see the failure of a mission at the national level and what does that then cause service members to reflect upon? So that was the genesis of thinking through this idea of mission injury. And, you know, you have kind of touched on a little bit. I want to, I want to, talk a little bit more about the differences between moral injury and mission injury. We are actually dedicating our fall issue to the topic of moral injury. So I'm excited about that coming out. And your article was a great segue to that to introduce the topic, because as you know, moral injury is a topic of increasing interest across a number of disciplines and communities in and outside the military. So you you write that Mission injury emerges from the member's evaluation of the strategic institutional purpose of a military endeavor. Can we go into a little bit more about the details of mission injury as it relates probably to Afghanistan? Absolutely. I think the best way to think through this is to share a bit of my own story. I was in 10th grade when 9-11 occurred. I don't come from a military family. I was not recruited into the military. I, I never met with a recruiter, never understood what this was that I was joining something occurred, something, a critical juncture occurred in our nation. And that caused me to seek out a way to serve. 
And I joined Air Force ROTC in college. I commissioned as an officer into the Air Force. I served, I thought I would serve four years and move on, but I served for 15 years active duty. And now I'm a reservist. And the motivation for that was because I felt a compelling need to do something, to contribute, to join an effort, uh, because it felt like something had occurred and it was wrong, the attack of 9-11. And so I wanted to do my part to serve my nation. I think generally my generation of service members felt the same motivation, felt the same pull to join the service, to sacrifice stability or other career goals and participate in our military endeavor. And I think we always felt motivated to do that because we knew our actions were justified. We had been attacked. And so what the, our nation ended up doing in Afghanistan and then a few years later in, in Iraq all felt ju- justified and motivated. So over the 20 years of the war on terror and contingency operations overseas, that was always the message that we felt, that we heard communicated by our leaders. We were told we're doing God's work and, and we believed it. And I think rightly so, because the attacks of 9-11 were horrific and unprovoked and, and something that we needed to respond to. Yet in 2021, when we finally withdrew from Afghanistan and we saw that whatever initial strategic goals we had ultimately did not come into effect and we saw the Taliban retake, we saw this regime, this oppressive regime retake the country where we had been for 20 years, that showed that at the strategic level, at our national level, what our nation had been trying to do did not come to fruition. I do want to say that I think we accomplished many positive things over 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, but yet the feeling of disappointment and, oh, this didn't work out the way we wanted it is still there. And so I think that's why I think about it very much at the strategic level, at the systemic level, is, is my generation joined the military for this purpose, and ultimately we saw this purpose end in withdrawal and end in and, and what I say clearly in the article is failure. And that's distinct from the generations joining the military today who are not motivated by the same horrific event of, a, of an attack. They're motivated to join the military for different reasons. And so I think really about what is that, what is that mindset? What is that generational divide in the military? Where the senior officers and senior enlisted who are recruiting and training and, and motivating the younger generations. And yet if those senior levels are experiencing this sense of disruption and the sense of mission failure and mission injury, how does that impact recruitment and retention more broadly in the force? Yeah, that's an interesting gap to get at. I hadn't really thought about that. My son joined the military. He watched 9-11 unfold when he was nine years old on the TV when I couldn't turn it off because I just was in complete shock. And so he watched the second plane come in and now he's a captain in the army. So, but I had never, you know, I hadn't really thought about that until you just said that, that it's definitely a difference in motivation. And the current generation per your article is going to be affected by that mission injury coming out of Afghanistan and affect recruitment. So as you point out. So next, I want to sort of get at how you uh, leverage a feminist analytical framework to bring this to light and to flesh it out 
You write that the mundane matters, the value of everyday lived experiences of individual actors. And incidentally, your literary device using that um, imagine letter to an editor was what I thought was very effective. But again, if you could discuss the that framework, how it puts flesh on the concept of mission injury. Definitely. Thank you for the question. I think when people hear feminist analytical framework, they probably think of women. Yet critical feminist theory is broader than just studying gender, just studying men and women. It's a way to study power relationships and politics that often have been overlooked in canonical political science or international security studies. I first studied feminist critical theory when I was in grad school sponsored by the Air Force. And it was very disruptive for me because I never thought about relationships and power operating at the individual level. But I consider myself a feminist scholar now. And so I think the contributions of a feminist analytical framework for this work are twofold. First, we see that power and politics occur at the individual level and not just at the state versus state conflict level or at the international level. So we're looking for dynamics of power and political action beyond larger entities. And so then when we do go to that individual level, Cynthia Enlow is the scholar who said the mundane matters. And that points us to the fact that The second contribution is individual experiences, individual interactions are political. Power occurs at that individual level. People's lived experiences matter for how they engage in institutions, how they access agency and power. And when you study those individual and group level dynamics, you see elements unfold that you would miss if you were ignoring that level of analysis. So... I leveraged that framework to see and open the door into service members' experiences in the military and thinking through how does the lifestyle of military service shape people's propensity to serve, people's propensity to stay in, and how does that then interact with something at the strategic level like withdrawal from Afghanistan to shape feelings of desire to continue in the military or oh, I feel disappointed and I sacrificed so much to serve and this mission ultimately failed. So now what do I do? The bringing in of the individual experiences and lens, I think it makes sense. So through the article, you introduce and discuss mission injury and you again, flesh it out, talk about it. And then uh, you go into some recommendations and I'm really interested in having you share that with us. I thought that they were important and timely and needed. I hope so. I think the DOD and the Air Force in particular have been quite forward leaning in recent years on recognizing individual needs within the military. I think we've seen successful policy changes recently, many of which have been led by service members themselves who are experiencing some of the structural challenges of military life. And I think these policy changes are the right direction. So we've seen the Women's Initiatives team in the Air Force lead policy changes everywhere from changing hairstyles for women to accommodate operational and medical issues to redesigning uniforms so that we are equipping and outfitting our service members with material that actually fits their bodies to redesigning aircraft cockpits, which were originally based on 
1960s measurements of the average male body and parental leave. So we now have 12 weeks of parental leave for all service members, plus six weeks of convalescent leave for birthing mothers. These changes are huge because I think they they recognize the challenges that individuals and families experience within an institution like the military that was designed at a certain place in time and has continued on those path-dependent processes because that's how institutions function. They, they continue and they build rules and they progress as they've been until you have someone say, stop, this isn't working for the population we have now. So I think those changes are very important. I think the policy changes where senior leaders have talked more openly about mental health are critical because that touches not only on moral injury, but I do think on some of the mission injury elements making those services more accessible to service members and their families is is very valuable. And I think continuing that work is going to help the force as we transition across these different moments in time. But I think more needs to be done. I'm a huge proponent of the Air Force's and DOD's diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. I've had the privilege of working in these offices at the Air Force Academy, and I've seen that DEI efforts are addressing the reality that individual identity is important because it shapes our experiences, it shapes our access to resources, and it shapes our ability to bring our full selves to whatever we are doing in the military. So continuing those efforts is critical. And I think there's a gap in that effort because we we know that it's important. We know empowering marginalized groups, investing in DEI, continuing the women's initiatives efforts. We know how critical they are. And I think now we need to see the operational impact of those efforts. What are the outcomes when we do make changes to uniform standards and hair standards and investing in more childcare and aligning PCSs to support joint spouse? How does that impact people's continued retention and motivation for others to join the service? I really think that could be an area where the DOD could invest to see more of those operational outcomes and evidence-based studies to say, look, we know that now that war on terror is over, we might have different challenges with recruitment and retention. So let's continue investing in these policies and programs that make it less burdensome for people to serve. And then let's see what the outcomes are so that we can continue investing and putting resources into these important critical endeavors. You are spot on. The recruitment situation, as you know, is is not good right now. And from what I'm uh, hearing and reading, many of the reasons why people are choosing not to join the military have to do exactly with what you're talking about. So I think that's, again, timely needed and overdue. So in the end, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about to finish with? Um, the floor is yours to to close out the conversation and uh, any any final words or thoughts that you'd like to share? I think ultimately I have a lot of hope for our DOD and our Air Force and Space Force. Even though the article that I wrote is quite critical, I do feel optimistic. And part of that is from seeing the policy changes led by individuals and organizations. And part of that is also from working at the Air Force Academy and teaching our cadets. I think there's room for the DOD to adjust in order to leverage and harness potential more proactively. 
I think a lot about critical junctures. So what are moments in time where we see institutions change? World War II was a huge one. That's where we saw the birth of the Air Force. Well, we're in one now. Uh, Post-COVID, post-Afghanistan, this is a critical juncture where we can change things because the only reason rules are in place is because someone put them in place however many years ago. Right. So I argue in my article to take a constructivist approach, to take this idea that we can create new rules, new organizations, new institutions, and we should, because we should be able to redesign our processes to harness and enhance the power that individuals and groups have. I think new generations, younger generations want different things from their lives and from their service. I saw that firsthand teaching cadets where I had, I had young cadets already asking about work family balance, already asking about when I'm a pilot, how do I work with the on-base CDC to see my kids more often? Mm. These are, these are pressing issues on their mind. And that wasn't necessarily the case for my generation when we joined in a time of war. And so I think really stopping and recognizing that a younger generation in a different moment in time, they, they want to serve, but they want something different from their service. They want flexibility. They want support. They want a bit more voice in the system. And we can do that. We, we can leverage the power to change institutions in order to motivate and retain people. So I'm hopeful. I think the work everyone is doing is really important and I, I'm proud to be part of it. Well, I really appreciate you being part of the podcast today, joining us to talk about these really important issues in your article. I commend your article to our readers and thank you again for joining us today. Thank you so much.